slightly echoey in this room. Yes, yes, yes. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the big, big, big cat, cat, cat. Anderson, Anderson, Anderson. In the Easton Library, library. We've changed locations. We have. We've changed locations, and I'll be putting up on Facebook a panoramic view of this luxurious space that we find ourselves in. Yeah, this is pretty cool. There's a lot of old stuff here. There is. You know what else is cool? I think this is the first podcast we've done in person in a while. Yeah. yeah. We've been doing them on Skype, and we've been doing it on the phone, and we've been uh, not having the... Up close and personal, you know, that whole deal. To be clear, we've never had an up close or personal podcast interaction. Never. But we or have any other had kind. an in person. <laughs> we have done in person podcasts. This is true. This is absolutely true. So, yeah. I am uh, looking right now at some news, and it is CNN Money and. Apparently, they're doing a story about how world archery is virtualizing the sport. World archery targets virtual tournaments amid coronavirus, the CNN Money headline. I thought that was interesting. So uh, it's basically Tom Dealing doing what he did on our last podcast, breaking down the, uh, the substance of the uh, lockdown knockout. But it's pretty cool that it's getting, you know, like CNN and other news media coverage. They must yeah. be really bored. Yeah, I guess. So this time the lockdown, of course, is, uh, is recurve shooters. So that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, as this thing develops, we'll, uh, we'll catch up. It's this weekend that the finals take place. So, Yeah, pretty exciting with the 12 ring and the whatnot. I watched. <laughs> I watched a couple of them. What 12 ring? The 12 ring, you, you haven't been watching. No, not this part. I didn't know anything about a 12 ring. The recurve lockdown challenge has a 12 ring. When did they do that? Since they started the recurve lockdown challenge. Well, you're absolutely right. I haven't actually watched it. Yeah, there is a 12 ring. It's, it splits the seven and the six ring, I believe. And it's like smaller than an X. So you go for your, your, your costly potential shot to make up yeah. for something? Is that the There's idea? only one of them. Only one target has it. You better just go ahead and look at it. All right. Just well, go ahead and pull I'll, it I'll up. I'll do that when we get done podcasting. Yeah, only, only one, um, the top target, target number two, has it, I think. And you have to call it if you're going to shoot it. You have to call it. Yeah, you, don't, you can't just ginch one out there and go, yep, I yeah. intended to shoot that 12 ring. So you, if you're two points back... Go for the 12, huh? Or, yeah, I mean, there's been... I mean, on your last arrow. There's been a number of scenarios where guys have shot for it. A number. So you could... Uh, Steve Weiler beat uh, Brady. He hit two 12 rings to beat Brady. Brady hit one, but it was not enough. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how this sits with me. I'll have to watch. I it's, guess. Um, I mean, sadly, putting a, like two-centimeter ring at the bottom of a target is one of the most exciting things that's happened in target archery competition. Okay, so it's outside the target. It's, it's a separate dot. Not outside the target. It's in the six, seven ring straight low. Go ahead and pull it up there. Just right. pull it up. All right. In the meantime, yeah. we've got a bunch of listener questions because so many people sympathized with the fact that you're one of the most bored people at Easton because you're responsible for handling problems there. Did you see that? I mean, yeah. they really responded. People like you. Yeah, I think some people called in and tried to give me more problems. Oh, well, okay. 
I, I see one right here. There's, there's, uh, there's two. There's th yeah, there are definitely some people trying to cause you problems with some of these questions. We'll have, to, uh, we'll have to address those, maybe some of them offline and some of them online. But we'll the most important one was what was for dinner? Your wife, Linda, wanted to know. Yeah, I can't remember. Okay. Tacos, maybe. Yeah. Well... We have, uh, we have Chef Vandenberg with the most, uh, shall we say, Monty Python question of the day, which is, of course, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen sparrow? One. Well, let's see. You've got you to follow up here. Is it an African swallow or a European swallow? It matters. It's one. Uh-huh. Okay. It's one. That's a, a new unit of speed. It's binary. That's it. Man, I'll tell you, the, the changes around here at the Archery Center, you got to wear a mask, which I did, which was interesting because nobody recognized me when I walked in because there's some new folks at the front desk. Yeah, some guy. Yeah. It's uh, operational, but they've taken, the, they've taken the supermarket approach, one-way lanes to get in and out of things. So, you know, trying to keep the uh, distance thing. Come to think of it, I suppose archery is one of the best sports for keeping your distance. Yeah, yeah, archery and golf. And golf, yeah. 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 You got any golf in lately? Yeah, I've been playing. You playing know, some was, of my uh, best golf, actually. I was talking to Jay Bars. He went and played with Darren Cottle. I was and, supposed to uh, go. Yeah, you should have. I missed out. It could have been very interesting to see whether Jay would have still made his two under par, under 70 round that he shot. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Jay's legit. Jay is legit. He doesn't practice much, but uh, the man is legit. But he was actually proud enough of that to mention it to me. He shot two under par. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. Zach was there, and uh, I'm not sure who else. A couple other folks. I better go play with him next time. You're going to have to. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to see whether the, uh, the man with the strongest mental game in the sport versus the man with the current strongest mental game in the sport. <laughs> I don't know about that. But <laughs> Whether they can get up each other's noses or not, it'll be well, interesting to see. I am not a, I'm not a par golfer. Well, Jay mentioned that the guys got real quiet at a certain point because they were, like, following along, you know? Right. Oh, the other one was Alex Cole. Alex Cole was yeah, the Alex. other one. And um, Jay mentioned that uh, Alex was keeping score, so he didn't say much at all. But when Darren and Zach realized what was happening, they started getting quieter. <laughs> Let him try to get his under par around in, yeah. Well, I think that's what they... Uh, they yeah. But with Jay, the thing with Jay is you don't, you don't do that. you got to keep the banter up, or it makes him, you know... Yeah. It, it, it throws him off. This is the guy that brought listening to music into the sport of archery, <laughs> literally. There was no music innovation. at tournaments, and there was no shooters listening to music at tournaments before Jay Bars. What innovation? I'm not kidding. Huh. You know, you've seen the heavy metalist poster? Yeah. Yeah. You know what we'll do? I, I think maybe for the next podcast, we'll, we'll get a little segment in with uh, Mr. Bars and talk to him about some of this stuff. Next time I'm at Salt Lake Archery, which will be in maybe December, I will take a photo of the heavy metalist poster. Yeah. So... And you can probably Google it and find it. I'm about to do just that. Heavy medalist, M-E-D-A-L-I-S-T. But uh, it's a classic. All righty. Um, moving into the questions here. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. Starting out here. Jeff Jenkins is asking a question. And he's saying that the Easton Archery website could 
be a little easier to navigate. No doubt. I think uh, that's being worked on. I hope. Yeah. So, Jeff, thanks for that. Um, he has a specific question about components. Yeah. He says that sometimes he's looking at arrows and finding the components that are available for a given arrow is a little bit of a crapshoot. Is, is his he point. will be pleased to see what I have been working on then. Okay. We'll just keep that in our mm -hmm. pocket until you... It's uh, to be very obvious what goes with what. Okay. So, what Jeff, you, Steve is, uh, Steve's working the problem. I'm me. fixing your problems, Jeff. AC is uh, saying he's got a recurve question from Ireland. Shoots an MKZ, I suppose it would be an MKZ, with Mach X 36 pound medium limbs, giving 40 pounds off the fingers once the tiller boat adjustment and his uh, 29 inch arrows are factored in. He shoots uh, carbon one 660, 100 grain points, pin knocks, and XS wings. Says that the uh, unfletched arrows group well with the fletched. Wants to upgrade to some X10s, so he's thinking of either sticking to the 660 spine or dropping down, he means up, to 600 spine, or are they close enough it won't matter? Hmm. Well, if you're shooting a carbon 1660 and you go to a 600 X10, it's going to be quite a bit reacting, quite a bit stiffer, even with the tail spine differential. My thought would be would you rather move up? two pounds or down two pounds that's what i'm talking about because maybe it would be better to keep working at it and you know he's at 40 pounds right now you know maybe 42 44 would be a good goal to get to if you want to be competitive outdoors where you can get the most out of using the x10s uh at the risk of uh costing a sale i would say stick with what you've got for now and look at going up in weight before you switch over yeah, I would think, it, you know, if, if he's like, hey, I'm not planning on changing weight, all right, then get the 650 X10. Yeah. Tune from there. If you have to drop a pound, who cares? Right. It won't matter. Yeah. But if you want to get to a more competitive weight, mm -hmm. outdoors in particular, because that's what X10s are for, then maybe do that. Yep. And, you know, go, go, up, 600. go up to a 600 after you've gone up two to, two to three pounds. And uh, I know that's a lot on recurve, but uh, it sounds like you have the room for it with uh with everything here you should you should be able to get 42 out of those 36 especially since they're marked heavy anyway i mean they're you know they're heavier than marked i should say they don't mark them to ata standards at mk okay sarah has a question uh it's a, also a recurve question so since these were supposed to be questions for steve i don't get it but okay uh when sarah does her spt draws on it which is SPT is uh, special performance training. It's basically using the bow as an exercise machine. So when she does her SPT draws on it, she gets a clicking sound and feel from her top limb. Mm -hmm. Could it just be her tiller is a bit off, a string problem, something wrong with the limb? No, none of those. I actually know. I do too. Go ahead, Steve. I believe it's from the clear coat, and Hoyt makes a little clear sticker, uh -huh. little little rubbery tab type thing that you put on there, right? It's actually a Teflon dot. Teflon dot, exactly. Yep. So, Sarah, it could be the, uh, the clear coat is toughenized, right? It's got a little bit of a rubbery aspect to it, and as a result, in other words, if you strike it with something, it's less likely to chip, but it has a little bit of give to it, a little stiction, and sometimes it causes the pocket to click a little bit. Which is, uh, which is fine if it's nowhere near where you're at full draw, but if it's doing it, you know, say halfway in the draw, that's no big deal. If it's doing it when you're at full draw, that's probably a bad thing, but I've never seen that happen. Anyway, Sarah, that's, uh, 
if, if you can't uh, get a hold of Doug at Hoyt and uh, get a set of those little stickers, because I think I think they discontinued them. To make it easier for her, anyone at Hoyt could get her those. Yeah. She calls in. Possibly. You don't have to try to get to Doug. Well, <laughs> that would be Doug's likely to be the only guy that knows what we're talking about. Mm, I think they'd know. Okay. Anyway, a little string wax. Yeah. You know, throw a little string wax on the forks of the limb, just a little, just a thin layer of string wax, and that should solve the problem. And uh, I don't think it's uh, an issue with anything other than that. It's uh, a pretty common thing, but, um, yeah, it's happening when she's letting down, so it's not a big deal. But uh, it's not a problem, per se. It's just a, a feature, shall we say, of the, of the clear coat. Um, let's see here. What do we got? Um, Steve, Adam wants your opinion on the best release for target archery. He's been shooting recurve for a long time. Recently, he bought a compound. He tried a thumb release. Now he uses a stand blackjack hinge release. He wants to know if he made the right choice or should he have tried the thumb release for longer? I'm a big fan of the hinge release. I think if you look at the most... Well, I'm not going to say the best because there's plenty of good shooters using the thumb release, but the majority of your winners in professional archery use a hinge almost exclusively. So I, uh, I think if you can shoot a hinge well and you can mentally commit to it, you can shoot a thumb button well. But if you can't shoot a hinge well, you're just going to struggle with the thumb button at some point, sooner or later. So yeah, you made the right choice. Continue to shoot a hinge. My personal favorite has always been uh, anything made with the True Ball HT head. So if you want a swept release handle, you'd get the HT or HT Pro, the brass version. Uh, if you want a straighter handle, you'd get the HBC. Either one of those. So I think it's the best head. I think it's a really good release, and it's got micro adjust capability, which is pretty key. I'll point out another thing, and that is, Adam, that um, when you're shooting recurve for 30 years, and if you've been doing it right, it should be fairly natural for you to do the same kind of motion that will be the best thing to use with, a, uh, with that particular type of release, a hinge release. In fact, um, my coach, Dick Tone, used to have me practice with a hinge release to get the proper follow-through and feel on my recurve. So I think that uh, it might be the best way for a recurve shooter to switch to compound is with a back tension release because if you've been shooting correctly, you understand exactly what back tension is and how to implement it. So sounds like a good plan. Steve, I got a question for you. I, I noticed that um, Trueball, I think, has been making some um, tech information available. And what they're saying is that releases that have the jaw move outward mm -hmm. have a less deviation than releases that have it uh, sort of the D-loop go around the thing as it trips. And um, I'm wondering what you think of whether that's really, on a practical level, anything that shooters should be thinking about, or is it, uh, you know, is it important? Um, I, you know, I haven't read anything about it. I know uh, my buddy Tim Gillingham talks about how it will change you know how the it, it can change your, the tuning your bow it can no oh, i believe that be that drastic so but i, I haven't I read it, the i believe it can affect the the, the tune yeah. i just can't see how it would affect shot to shot consistency that's the only thing you know back in the day 
Don Rabska and the team at Easton Van Nuys had put together a very extensive collection of video, um, and they had a number of the top shooters of that time, you know, we're talking 1991-ish, um, including a number of the top release shooters, and the video focused on how caliper release versus other types, you know, the, the flipper types and things of that nature, how those releases would affect the string. But I think that as long as you're reasonably consistent with your hand position, you know, on your release hand, then it shouldn't really matter all that much. Yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine it would, you know, greatly change your score, but I think if there's a better way to do it and that's measurable, then you might as well design around that, you know? Sure. Mike is asking a question, which is an interesting thing. Um, he says, during a shot that has high importance, what are the actual words you say to yourself through the execution of your shot? I don't know that I, I, don't know that I could tell you that. Um, I think for one thing, it's probably dependent on the actual occasion. Yeah, there's, the, the for sure you have to have some positive affirmation. Whether, whether, whatever you say is kind of irrelevant, but you can't be fearful of the moment. You have to be excited about the moment, right? Because you're going to have that feeling of nerves, whatever it is, but nerves and excitement are, are they go hand in hand. But one is positive, the other is negative. Yep. So if you can be, a, you're gonna, you're gonna feel it, so you might as well be excited about it, right? Like, okay, here we go, let's get this. Something like that. You know, when Jay was shooting that under par score that he shot the other day, um, I asked him, okay, so what was going through your head when you knew this next stroke or whatever was going to, because he had to sink a bunch of eight and 10 foot putts to do this too. So I asked him, you know, what went through your head? Because, you know, he and I have had extensive conversations about times when he's won world championships and won obviously the Olympic games and, and stuff. And, you know, it was a pretty similar game that he was playing. Darren made a comment to him just before, something along the lines of this is it, something like that. Not, not in a negative way in any way, but, um, you know, more of an acknowledging kind of a smiling thing, you know. Like, come on, man, let's do it. Yeah. Not like, oh, no, no. Oh, here you go. Yeah. Ooh. No, 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 Bill Murray. Yeah. <laughs> you know, none of that. But, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that Jay has learned um, to take that pressure and turn it into a, a positive, just like you have, and just like most top shooters can do. And so, a positive affirmation, whatever that might be, Mike is what you're looking for there. It doesn't matter what the words are. What matters is their intent and their meaning to you at the time that you invoke them. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, half of it is deciding, deciding which side of the aisle you want to be on, excitement or scared, nervous, scared. So like I said, if you, the feeling is almost one and the same. If you can just say, oh, I feel this way because I'm excited, right? Now you're like looking forward to the opportunity. That's it. Jay, or Jai, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name, uh, is asking about how we feel about a photo of Levi Morgan standing in front of the shooting line and, um, and by an archer to hold an umbrella up. He says it seems dangerous. I'm going to let Levi Morgan, who's done this a long time, determine what he thinks is dangerous. Exactly. 
So, yeah. And you know what? Your length of tenure doesn't determine whether something is safe or not. But at the same time, I'm, <laughs> I'm not too concerned. I'll point out a couple things. One of them being that uh, photo angles can make things look different than they may actually be. Object in mirrors larger than it appears, right? That kind right. of thing. But I also think, you know, I mean, really, seriously, do you really think Levi Morgan's going to do something that's actually going to endanger himself after all his years in the sport and his responsibilities? I, I kind of doubt it. Ken is asking an interesting question. He says he's not seen this one discussed before, and it has been dis discussed before, actually. But uh, with the introduction of the pro comp, it got him curious. Why was the pro field on the market for such a short run? Sales, simple as that. I oh, mean, well, yeah, and, and just to go into the, into the inside baseball, the pro field was set at a much higher price than what it was intended to be. But when, you know, when they looked at what it cost to build and, you know, um, certain efficiencies that hadn't been worked into the current production processes, uh, it became evident that, you know, it was only maybe $20 different than going to an ACE. And at that time, it just, you know, I mean, it, the uh, ultimately, that's what led to the sales not being it so was, great. There was no point. It was priced within thirty dollars of the pro tour. Right. So All if above. you're if you're fortunate enough to be able to buy a set of pro tours for your FIDA game and then some pro fields for field, then great. But if you're buying one set of outdoor arrows and you're within thirty dollars of pro tour, everyone's going to go that direction. So yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then sales were just weak on it. And uh, didn't make sense. At the time, I was working at the uh, bow company, and um, they brought me in to consult on this product. And I told them, this is where the price needs to be. And so when the price came out more than $100 uh, higher, I kind of thought, eh, that was not the best plan there. But, um, you know, that's, that's the way those things go sometimes. The pro comp, um, very successful, I think. Yeah, and it's, you know, got a different uh it's a similar arrow but they're different entirely yep so there you go uh let's see here x10 pro tour versus pro comp for mid-level archers this is from rick so if you're if your goal as a mid-level archer is to be on team usa or shoot 700 plus 50 meter scores then you need to shoot a pro tour um, if you're gonna shoot a ton of outdoor archery in general get a pro comp there you go and i'd love for you to buy pro tours all the time but i'm a consumer too and i came from being a not even a mid-level archer a low level archer a lowest level archer and a pro comp would have made a lot of sense for me and at a certain point in your development, the higher-end arrow made more sense. Yeah, yeah. If you want to, like I said, if you're going to play in the FIDA game in the wind, there's no, no comparison. I have shot both, and there's no comparison. So Pro Tour is the way to go. You know, at the time that we moved the compound round from 70 to 50 meters, I thought, oh, there goes the, you know, there goes the justification for the high-end high density, you know, and it turned out I was wrong about that. It turned out that they're just as important as ever. When we came out with the Pro Comp, I had a bow that would shoot a Pro Comp and a Pro Tour on top of each other. 
like literally same site mark. And I had, we were at Arizona on practice day and we had a wind that was actually aimable, right? You could still aim, but you had to be thoughtful of what the wind was doing. And a shot that would go, if I broke a shot in the middle, X10 or Pro Tour would catch right side 10 and a Pro Comp would be in the nine. So there's no doubt in my mind which one I was likely to score higher with, right? The one, it's a, it's a full scoring ring or a half scoring ring, however you want to look at it, difference. And that's a pretty big uh, margin of error difference to work with. Sarah is uh, asking a question and making a comment, and um, she's saying that she needs some pointers about a couple of things. This is a, kind of a long post, so I'm not going to get into the meat of it too much, but I'll point out that she's saying that uh, she's working on getting her compound Joad kids squared away with equipment, but there are things she thinks she could do to help them tune their equipment better, stuff she doesn't know. Um, they're parents of the students that she's working with bought them bow packages before getting her input. And um, it seems like they've got whisker biscuits to start with, that's, that's a issue. And um, they've got some, you know, actual movable sights instead of hunting sights that came on those bows. Um, what's the best way to tune these setups for outdoor target competitions? I'm gonna say, you know, and, and not to be cheeky, get a proper arrow rest would be the first thing to start with if you want to shoot target. Yeah, even just a simple drop away would work fine. You know, they look at what Sergio Pagna uses, very simple drop away. But uh, I don't think a whisker biscuit would be the place to start. Someone's going to argue that for the sake of it. But Pretty rough on fletching too. Yeah, they just, I don't I mean, I don't know. A whisker biz, it's a good, safe way to get someone started in the game once they've got a few shots down the pipe and they understand how to but you know, keep if you're an a arrow good coach, on the rest. If you're a good coach, you can teach them to put an arrow on the rest and keep it there and let it down and keep it on there if you, yeah. if you drill that a little bit. You know? And I think that, just from a fundamental safety standpoint, is a good idea anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the thing I don't like too much about the whisker biscuit is you see people trying to shoot them with fingers and with releases and... They're, you know, they're, they're constantly whacking the, the fletching. Every, every shot is degrading the fletching to some degree. And if you're shooting target, you're repeating a lot, and you're going to end up, you know, costing yourself yeah. more in arrow maintenance and everything else. I, personally, I think, you know, if it's a total beginner, and they've never picked up a bow before. That's one thing, but you're not talking about that here. So I would suggest, uh, and they are using a trigger-type release, too, um, I would suggest that uh, the first thing to do would be to get them a solid, well-made, not expensive arrow rest. And Steve said a drop away, I think, you know, a drop away or something that will provide for clearance either way. Some. So <clears throat> she says that she doesn't know if they're quite ready for a back tension type yet. And just in general, Steve, do you, what's your philosophy on getting people to go from a trigger release to a back tension in terms of development sooner or later? I think a lot of people get told that, that a back tension release is hard, so then it becomes hard in their brain. But there's a good number of kids you can see that that's what their mom or dad started them on, and that's the only thing they know, and it's not a big deal. Not a big deal for them. My opinion, start them out right, and they'll only get better. Try to transition them after maybe learning bad habits with a trigger release is a harder job. Yeah. So 
switch them sooner than later would be my suggestion as well. I think you, I think we agree on this. Worst thing that happens is they hit themselves in the face. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I uh, I used to have a very good friend who was your size, who once knocked himself onto the floor. He was shooting a Fletchmatic release. The release had you know the, the, they, that was a roller type release. You know, I had a pair of rollers, mm-hmm. and so when you pulled the trigger, the rollers would start to roll and then. Release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The trouble is that's partly dependent on the coefficient of friction. In other words, if you... If How just, heavy the bow is. And whether there's dust or rain or... Mm. So he pulled that thing back and hit himself so hard in the face, he literally fell on his butt. But did he die? He did not. Yeah. Fortunately. Good guy. But uh, yeah, that was a, a good lesson there. Be careful about your face alignment with the trigger. We, uh, we skipped over a couple things from Rick Herbs. Okay, go ahead. He asks, why is there not a lighter version of an FMJ? Well, okay, so at a certain point, you're defeating the purpose of the FMJ. One of the design imperatives, imperatives of the FMJ is it's, it's dense and heavy for penetration. It's also stronger in certain types of target butts in the, in the target models. So... A lighter FMJ would lose some of the benefits of the design philosophy. Yeah. And in theory, in theory, that's one we probably could make a bit lighter. Not a whole lot. I mean, maybe a half grain per inch per, you know, on a, on a spine value. So you're looking 10, 15 grains, maybe. Um, and then he also asks... Why is there not a larger thin wall ACC? Like, uh, I'm assuming it means like a 23, which we did make and did not work. Right. Thin wall just led to it buckling. So it didn't, didn't work. You remember uh, on the last podcast, you actually brought up that subject. You didn't mention that particular product, but uh, Rio and Logan took them to the prototypes. Rio had them in Singapore. Singapore, and yeah. they were shooting into <laughs> targets that were basically the consistency of this table. and uh yeah so you know they 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 grouped really well and they shot really well right up to the point where they started to crack and break and they were still not light even then they were over 12 grains per inch i want to say yeah which is heavier than a 2315 so what engineering figured was to make it viable it'd have to weigh about 16 grains per inch not going to play. Yeah. Then I had someone ask me, why don't you guys make a 23 diameter FMJ? And that one would need to weigh about 19 grains per inch. I was about to say, just hazard a guess at 20. So, yeah. Yeah. It would be because basically you're, you're talking, now you have to do a, you're taking a 2312 and sticking a piece of carbon in it because the 2312 is about as thin wall of exterior aluminum jacket that you could use yeah because it gets really i mean it's doable but it's very expensive and difficult to draw below that at that diameter you're building two arrows the stiff the the one the jacket is already a 420 spine now you sleeve it with a piece of carbon there's a synergy between the two yeah it's going to be well i can tell you exactly what it would be a lot stiffer than a 2318 and a lot heavier which is why we did the 2318 exactly we wanted a stiffer version uh it's already it's plenty heavy so it would be 
too stiff, it would be too heavy and would be too expensive. You got to buy two arrows for every one. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why aluminum arrows are still around. And one of them is they do a really good job for exactly the niche that you're talking about for mm -hmm. that kind of arrow. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight on that. Yeah. And it would be part of the reason it'd be too expensive. You might say, well, you guys make FMJs now. Yes, but those are at a much higher volume than would be an FMJ 23. Absolutely. So we probably wouldn't sell 3% of an FMJ 23 as we do FMJ hunting. Oh, I don't think that, uh, I don't think it would come into the equation at all. Yeah. It wouldn't make sense. It would get shot down at the engineering level because it just wouldn't make sense. It, it did. So I would love to see an ACC 23. I think it'd be awesome. Um, and then what you might be able to do with it from there, but well, so, the you weight, know, the I, weight is just I, the problem. I've told you this story. I once tried to build something like that, but you, you know, if you use carbon on the outside of it, it's way too stiff for mm -hmm. what you're looking for. You can still hit the, theoretically, you can still hit the stiffness and weight requirements with other materials. I've tested other materials back in Van Nuys on this very subject. Trouble is they don't stay straight. Like they, fiberglass or something like that? Things like that will just hold a bend like a noodle. Mm. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, like literally, <laughs> it was just really freakish. We even tried Vectran once. Really? Yeah. And uh, it, it was quite interesting how that reacted. What does Vectran feel like in like a sheet form like that? Well, it's prepreg. So, you know, it's the same Vectran that, you know, that they use in bowstrings. You better um, explain what prepreg is to people who don't know. So prepreg is a composite material that the fibers are pre-impregnated with a epoxy resin that is partially cured. So it's a sticky but not gluey, you mm -hmm. know, kind of, a, kind of a thing. So imagine, um, I guess the closest thing would be like one of those gauze bandages that has Vaseline in it. You know those? Mm -hmm. You know, like you put on a burn? Imagine that being the material, but the Vaseline is the epoxy. And, and it's then also it gets heated up to cure. And you wrap it onto an object or you roll it around a mandrel and you heat it up to cure it. Yep. And so at the end of the day, uh, it didn't work either. So, you know, there's, there's lots of high-tech materials out there, but there's still nothing that practically exceeds the performance of carbon fibers in all their various stiffnesses for this type of application. And on an arrow, so many, so much of the arrow design is dependent on the diameter. The diameter, the stiffness of the materials involved, mm -hmm. the percentage of resin, that is how much epoxy versus how much fiber, all of those things plus more come into play when you're designing an arrow. Um, I used to be able to design arrows and, and predict precisely at what diameter with what materials uh, you'd get the exact weight, the exact spine value, um, just with a spreadsheet mm -hmm. with a lot of formulas in it. And of course, now we've got more sophisticated tools than that. But um, the principles still apply. If you know yeah. the moment of inertia, you know the stiffness of the material, the Young's modulus, you know the bulk modulus, that is the stiffness of all those materials together, which alludes to what you were bringing up earlier with the FMJ, you know. Um, if you know all that stuff, you can dial it right in, design-wise. But at the end of the day, that also teaches us pretty quickly what will work and what won't. The problem comes into play when you have physical properties that you can't anticipate. 
So that's why sometimes you do something like put a Vectran arrow together and find out that it won't work, even though on paper it might. Yeah, and then, you know, going into, we had a guy the other day who on our, um, the more hunting-oriented Facebook page made a comment about the X-10s. Oh, they haven't changed since 1996. Like, well, they're still winning. And two, the, the window of true change you can get with the materials available is fairly nil, you know? What did we, we built those other ones and they were like, it saved what, like 10 grains, but they weren't durable? Like 10 grains, virtually nothing. And but that, you're giving up a lot. And the expense was considerably higher. Right. So they cost more. They only weighed a little bit less. And they break. And they break at a higher, at a, at a rate that wouldn't Say be they acceptable wear out. at this price. They wear out well, faster. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> right. So at the end of the day, I mean, you know, um, yeah, we had a good confluence of, of cosmic factors come together when we put that thing together originally. I'll also point out the 10 ring hasn't gotten any smaller or bigger. You know, but right. the scores keep going up, so that's that's pretty impressive too. You could say the bows have changed quite a bit. You could say that, but at the end of the day, they're pretty much within five percent of the same speeds that they've always been. You know, two to five percent. Uh, yeah, there have been some changes, uh, riser design in particular, but I would say the bows are less of the equation than some of the biomechanical stuff that goes on. Um, but the, the real key, of course, was the X-10 was really the first arrow intended to work with what bows do on, on the recurve mm -hmm. side, and still do today. Um, and so from that perspective, I think, you know, the coaching has changed, the mental game has changed, everything has changed, but the one constant is the X-10, and people are driving the scores higher with that. So much of progression is just seeing, seeing someone else do something, and now it's possible. Oh, yeah. So You know, you have a second uh, woman from Korea who's shot a 1,400 score, and now I think we might see it more potentially down the road. I mean, you know, it's been, there was a pretty long gap there. Wh who did it and when? It was uh, one of, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, but uh, it happened a year ago, oh, and okay. they just got around to giving her her feet a star for it. Was it Kang the Destroyer? No. Damn. It was actually a, a woman who was not good enough to make a national team. Yeah. She would be everyone else's greatest ever. So I, uh, I just looked it up. It's uh, Ryu Su Jung, second recurver to shoot a 1400 with a 1440 being a perfect score. So she's the second recurve archer to get that uh, coveted purple 1400 pin which uh, has not changed in, in many, many years. If, you're, if you know the old FIDA logo, that's what's still on those pins, which is pretty cool, if you ask me. She said that uh, keeping focused at the short distance was the hard part, and her focus was on controlling her mind until the end of the round. The only other recurve shooter to do it is, uh, is Pak Sung Hyun, of course, the winner of the uh, individual and gold medal team medal at the London, uh, sorry, at the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. And then in October of 2004, she shot a 1405 uh, later that year. And um, so obviously a, a bit of a stretch there, 16 years since that was done. Uh, Su Jung is 25 years old. She also has the world record for the 60 arrow 18 meter ranking round. She also shot a whopping 595 at the Macau Indoor Archery Open in December of 2018, and she's not good enough to represent Korea on the senior team.
It's tough on the streets there. It's a tough, tough place to make a team. And speaking of which, I just saw a shocking headline. Im Dong-hyun has been eliminated from the Korean team. He's been on there for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, that's like, he, he's effectively a dinosaur in recurve archery. It's the first time since 2002 that he will not be on the team. He's actually been on the team for 18 consecutive years, and he was on the team before that as well. So I just uh, I don't know what's going on here. It's uh, the Korean team has decided to restart their trials for Tokyo 2021. I know it's called Tokyo 2020, but it's happening in 2021. I really like the way they did that logo graphic of 2020 NE. I like that. It looks like 20. It looks like 2021, 2021. Mm. Have you seen it? No. I'll have to look it's it great. up. It's great. There's a lot of stuff that I haven't seen that, uh, that you have. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that movie you're referring to the other day, too. Oh, yeah, Last Samurai. Yeah, I got this cryptic, <laughs> I got this cryptic note from Steve. He says, hey, I watched The Last Samurai two nights ago. Now I know why you like Japan so much. And, I'm, of course, the first thing in my mind is, okay, this has got to be some kind of dig. <laughs> it's got to be some kind of dig. Yeah. Because you didn't respond to me when I said, okay, so what's the punchline? What am I missing here? No, it was a good movie. Tom Cruise, you know. Did he jump on a couch? Probably. Okay. Uh, he, mm. you know, he's going into space. Is he? That's what they say. Apparently he's going to be a paid guy on SpaceX and he's going to be shooting a movie up there. Heck yeah. I, cool. Save them all kinds of money on the special effects budget. Yeah. Doing it for real. Hey, yeah, this I guy like does it. his own, he, you know, this guy has got a few things to admire about him. He's, he does his own stunts. You know, say what you want about him, but he, you know, he is top gun. The interesting thing is he's my age. Yeah. Look up. But much better preserved. Look up Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis. Oh, yeah, that, that, that didn't gun work out as well for, for Ms. McGillis. Yeah, I mean, virtually everyone he was in a movie with. It's the same story, though. Well, somewhere in his attic, he's got that Dorian Gray photo or whatever portrait. All right, so Im Dong Hyung, back to that. Um, this guy, legend, right? I mean, he has been the guy single-handedly who has pumped up the Olympic record at, at like four consecutive Olympic Games. This guy has done so much, and the Korean trials have been restarted this week after being interrupted in April, and he's been cut. So that's, uh, that's tough because I don't know what kind of practice they could keep up during this time, right? I don't know how prepared he was going into it. Now, um, Chris Wells shared with us that he had posted a cryptic message on social media that suggested he might be retiring, but apparently um, that's been, you know, denied by the Korean Archery Association. So he's only 34 years old. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he's like two years older than you, something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and the guy's been literally one of the top shooters in the world for 20 years pretty amazing and like i said you know in the recurve world 34 like how many how many above 25 do you really see doing it it's pretty rare that's you know here's the thing though there's a lot of good but not absolute top level shooters who are in their 30s 40s and even 50s but it's tougher right it gets difficult because of the physical aspect of it you see more older compound shooters, to yeah. be sure. But um, I think that there's so many 
really talented younger shooters that, you know, the older guys, um, they're still shooting at a good level. I mean, Ojin Yuk is another one, right? Oh, is, is you know, uh, late 30s now. And still, yeah. still shooting at a high level. Got but some injuries. Yeah. Most of these guys, most these guys chase the dream, right? They do their four more years of practice, and they do four more years, and then they're like, ugh, I need to, like, I've been doing this. I'm, they're, they're 27, 28 years old, and they're like, I got to get started on life, you know, instead of chasing the Olympic thing, yeah. which is. A lot depends on what country. Yeah, it depends. Cause, but for most, it's very fruitless. Yeah, unless you can make a living at it, and in some countries you can. I mean, Takahara Furukawa is a full-time coach at Kindai University, as an mm -hmm. example. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, all these Korean team archers get a stipend and, and are generously paid for medals. Yeah, yeah, they're know. doing all right. But the guy in Great Britain, is he getting anything out of it? Or Not much? No. Even even here, even here in the U.S. Yeah. You know, yeah, Brady's winning a lot, which is why he's doing okay, but. Take uh, Joe Fanchin, for instance. You know, how old was he at the training center? And then he's like, I got to like, get started on life. You yeah, know? there's a number of very talented shooters that were at the training center, like Joe Fanchin and um, his teammate in uh, Copenhagen, um, Colin, mm -hmm. right? And those guys, basically, life caught up to them. They, they had to fish or cut bait in terms of you know, what they were going to do. Yeah. So I, I think Colin decided he wanted to go to the military, I think, something like yeah. that. Yeah. It's pretty Joe, Joe's building stabilizers or I don't know. Some, something like that. And uh, It's pretty tough to, you know, uh, for one of those guys have, you go into the Olympic Training Center at 17, 18 years old, and then you come out like eight years later, didn't get a chance to go to school, didn't get any life experience, no job experience. Now you're like, well, I'm behind there's you know? a substantial risk and some of them went past their third into their 30s and now they're like oh this is no good so yeah unless they can unless they can find a way to um do something related it's a very difficult yeah. thing it's much different in korea where you know im dong hyun is gonna have a career as a coach he's guaranteed yeah. yeah i mean he'll he'll have to show up once a week maybe you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, coach other sports, too. I mean, you know, uh, Kim Hyung-Tak, a lot of people know Kim Hyung-Tak as an archery coach, but the truth is he's... I'm looking at his book right now. It's right there. Yeah, that's right. It's right here in the library. Yeah. But, you know, he's actually a top golf co coach. Nice. Yeah. And, in fact, spends quite a bit of time, you know, on the golf course. That would just suck, right? Well, the head game works in both places, see. Yeah, it is virtually the same. But, yeah, that's shocking news out of Korea. And uh, the recurve squad for 2020 will be announced on Friday. The compound team for Korea has already been selected. It's going to be uh, Choi Young-hee, Kim Jong-ho, Yang Jae-won, a newcomer Kim Gwang-sup, Kim Yun-hee, So Che-won, Seol Dae-young, and Cho Sua, another newcomer. They'll be representing Korea at all of the international events that are going to be held this year, which may be a precious few. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. New selection process for the Korean team starts in September. Uh, they've already cut um, a number of people, but those people who have already been eliminated from the Tokyo Games will now have another chance. That includes Chang Hai Jin, Kibo mm -hmm. Bay, and Kuban Chan. I have no idea if Kibo Bay is interested in pursuing this or not she's recently had a child which is nice news but uh i guess we'll see 
Yeah, but it's interesting Indeed. stuff out of Korea. Anyway, um, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but I think this might be a good opportunity to uh, look around the room for a moment before we close out. Anything in here catch your eye? Um, no. That guy. We're in, uh, we're in the archery, the archery library of archery libraries. The Easton Family Archery Library is, uh, without a doubt, one of the most complete collections of archery memorabilia and also books and magazines, too. I mean, there's a, a copy of the, uh, every significant archery magazine uh, bound in leather uh, going back to the 1930s. And there's an original copy of the Roger Ascham book, Toxophilus, which was one of the first books ever printed on a, on a press from about 1640-ish, if I hmm. recall correctly. And that's here. And there's a lot of other artifacts and, and cool things. If you get a chance to come to the Archery Center here in Salt Lake City, uh, you can get a tour of the Easton Library, where, among other things, there's a, there's a nice collection of uh, original Easton family archery equipment here, including Mary Easton's arrows over there, um, which are maybe 23 inches long. She did not short. have a long draw. Now, Mary was who? Mary was Doug's, Doug's wife. wife. Okay. Jim's mom. Yeah. And she used to come to work in Van Nuys right up until maybe two years after I started working for the company. Remarkable lady. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, cool stuff here in the Easton Library. And I'm going to post up some Facebook shots uh, on the Easton Target Facebook so you can see what we're talking about. Sweet. Yeah. Well, we're going to call it for now. And uh, I've got special guest Jay Bars coming up on the next podcast. And Steve and I will uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Ladies on the men, Jay.